I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and lamps. I have read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Well, hello. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And uh, I'm jumping back into these documents on the American Civil War. And we're, um, we're right at the turning point here. So uh, the documents in what I read for today um, cover uh, the Battle of Gettysburg, um, which, of course, is a major turning point in the war, uh, alongside the, the end of the Siege of Vicksburg, which was just as a significant of a turning point in the conflict and i'd also say the the battle of fort wagner is also covered in these pages and that's a i guess not a very significant battle in terms of changing the war the situation of the war on the battlefield right that was a failed union assault and and i think that fort never fell during the war at least that's what glory the movie glory tells me um but I would still consider it a turning point in the sense that it did uh, really change the attitude of of Americans over the capacity of African-American soldiers to be, um, you know, soldiers in the front lines, you know, combat soldiers. They had been up to that point. We've, we've seen examples before of black soldiers fighting, um, but the use of them in in mass you know 300,000 or so would eventually be would serve many of those in would, would see combat I think um, you know as high a percentage of, of those soldiers saw combat as white soldiers so that's um, that itself is a major turning point right because the, the war couldn't have ended when it did on the time scale it did as decisively it did as if it wasn't for those hundreds of thousands of, of soldiers um, you know, added to the Union ranks and transforming the war into a war of liberation. So this is a theme we've talked about a lot on this in this series of of, of episodes on the, on the Civil War, especially in this volume, volume three of the Library of America's anthology of Civil War writings, um, because it's really in 63 where we see the, this change of policy having uh well, not only being implemented, right, but, uh, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, but also beginning to have an impact on the on the battlefield. It took a few months, but but we got to it. So um, I've been really, really kind of busy and stressed out. Uh, so I apologize for not uploading more often. Um, it's just uh, my work has kept me kind of exhausted every day. I've complained about this a lot uh, since I got this new job in, in Taiwan, but um, I've been working on some new curriculum things, uh, getting a start for the semester. And it's just the whole culture of my work environment is more draining. It's like, it's actually shocking how like, even if the workload is not significantly different in terms of like hours in the classroom, the work culture and the work environment and the, the policies of like things like human resources and, and, and all that stuff, you know, just, drain you so much more. I think there's certainly an analysis that should be done about uh, how 
like two equivalent jobs, you know, same kind of workload in one kind of workplace can be more draining and more exhausting just due to the work culture or the institutional culture of the place. Um, I think I'm an expert on that now. And, um, and yeah, um, anyways, that's my lame explanation about why I'm not uh, uploading as often as I used to. But I am trying to pick it up a little bit with uh, the Stephen King uh, novel I'm doing on the side. It's kind of a filler in some ways to, uh, to, um, to uh, a little bit easier to cover, a little bit more. Um, you know, it's funner to do novels, I think, than, than documents like this. As it's, it's hard to kind of put these kinds of like primary sources together. They're harder to read, of course, and things like that. So there's that. Um, and plus, I'm starting to plan ahead for my Mark Twain series. So the goal shortly is going to be to to read through the, the Mark Twain volumes, of which there are many of them, um, starting with like maybe Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, uh, Life on the Mississippi, those works, and then kind of working my way through um, those volumes. So anyways, that's the future plans, and, and hopefully that will lead to more uh, uh, or more frequent uploading, I suppose. But we'll see. I, I can't promise anything, unfortunately, just the way things are. So anyways, actually, there's not so much to say about these documents. It's, it's really, this is an example of where going through document by document is not... Um, you know, I'm not sure how fruitful it will be to go into detail. Uh, like in some of the earlier episodes where there was really a, a lot of issues on policy and public opinion uh, and those kinds of things, it was a, kind of more to talk about. These are really a lot of documents, mostly about the Battle of Gettysburg. And that's rightfully so, right? Because you, you have, do have a lot of uh, first-person accounts of the battle. Uh, written in some cases years later. You have, of course, a lot of research into the Battle of Gettysburg, which meant a lot of documentation on that battle has been preserved by by historians and state historical societies and, and you know, battlefields, right? The people who maintain these battlefields and just the, you know, the importance of this battle in the national memory has led to there being a lot of documentation about it. Um, so, but I, um, nevertheless, there's still a few things to say about this uh um about these documents i guess um and one thing I, I sort of noticed is is as much as we know how decisive uh the battle was i don't get the sense people at the time understood how decisive it was um and how transformative it was i think there's more of a feeling that vicksburg was the turning point than gettysburg and i think maybe um gettysburg address um maybe had a part in in elevating this battle um, to to make it the turning point of the war uh, in popular in, in kind of national consciousness, I suppose. Um, but the a lot of these documents, the people reflect on it, don't seem to to see saw it as more like a, a draw almost, right? Um, or where you see a lot of disappointment about about it not being more decisive, or even documents that seem to suggest that maybe even it, it was this really a Union victory, right? It was not as clear at the time. So there's like a fog of war over some of these these documents. Like even uh, we got one here, like Elizabeth Blair Lee, uh, who was the wife of a naval officer uh, and 
really connected like a her I think her father was like a counselor to Abraham Lincoln so in her is it a letter or a diary yeah this is a this is a letter and she writes the news from the armies is favorable but scarcely decisive enough for my appetite and I confess to some relief about things for our army were not concentrated as rapidly as the enemy and I feared bad results from the fatigue and scramble with which it was collected and that there's truth to that right uh, to the how the battle actually unfolded right where the you know both sides I guess she underestimates just how much that was the case for the Confederate side too because both sides were sort of rushing troops uh, they kind of scattered in on both sides over the course of three days it wasn't it like one unit didn't even come till the end of the second day um, but uh, what do we got here? Uh, yeah, uh, in the same letter, she writes later, Meade would pursue Lee instantly, but had to stop to get food for his men. Exclamation point, exclamation point. This I heard the president say when we met him at the White House door, where we took Blair to see the fireworks, in which he was disappointed. Eh, even the fireworks are disappointing, not much to the outcome of the battle. And of course, we know from another source we can look at here that Lincoln was not totally happy with uh, the outcome of the war. So I kind of skip ahead here to exactly find it. Uh, this was the letter that Lincoln wrote to Meade, uh, scolding him sort of for not, um, for not like pushing Lee after, after the battle. How does he say it here? Now, of course, this letter was never sent. This is a kind of a famous letter and it was never actually mailed. So he wrote it and then ended up not sending it because he's, um, you know, I guess he changed his mind. Which probably is right. I mean, it was a decisive battle without, you know, the killing bull being struck. And there's still this kind of belief uh, in commanders of, of, you know, there could be one decisive blow that could win the war, right? Certainly that's what a lot of the Southern generals thought and a lot of Northern generals kind of had that opinion too. Remember when um, Lincoln was writing to Hooker saying like, just win me a battle and I'll worry about dictatorship later. It's kind of like here. And uh, what he writes is, I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp and you could have closed upon him uh, and this would have ended the war with other late successes. And he's talked about there Vicksburg. Well, no, it probably wouldn't have ended the war, right? Um, it took uh, a, a year of, of pressure, right, uh, on, on Lee to even surrender that. So this idea that it was even possible to somehow surround them, to win that decisive battle in a Napoleonic fashion, no, that, that wasn't going to happen anymore. Now, as for the, the battlefield memoirs here, as always, these aren't uh, the most inspiring for me to read. Um, but but we do have some notable ones anyways, like, for instance, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain's uh, letter uh, kind of reporting on on the defense of, of Little, Little Round Top. And, of course, the famous bayonet charge and all that that's described here again it's it's this is something that's got kind of inflated in in history like as the thing that saved the union or something that's probably not true i think any idea of a decisive victory or anything that one unit could do to turn the tide of a battle or the war it's just we're not in that era anymore it's not you know what, what was it the battle of hastings where one stray arrow kills the king and ends the battle those that's not like that but people still have that in their head right it's um, 
Um, I guess you had to have that hope when you were like in the shit for for months and months and months. Uh, it, I guess it helped matters, and you know to think that was possible. And it, and it took people like Grant and Sherman to realize it was going to be a long slog. But um, but even this year, it's not the it's not as epic as it gets. Uh, I still would remembered. Um, not bad though. He does sort of, he, he gives it some gravitas, I suppose. Um, but anyway, it's a, a pretty good first-person account of, of that battle from uh, um, from that commander. Um, we got one, uh, a Union account of Pickett's charge, a letter to his, uh, a soldier's letter to his father. And uh, a lot of this letter praises um, the, the, the new commander of the Union Army, which is which is uh, something I think they needed because we saw a lot of frustration uh, with, uh, with earlier commanders like Burnside and Hooker in, in a lot of these documents. That is something I, I guess I learned reading these is that that's not just historians complaining about those officers, that there's a lot of complaints within the ranks of, about the behavior and decisions of those commanders. So we got another document here by Sherman uh, to his wife uh, complaining <laughs> about the you know he's just off this big success in, in the vicksburg campaign so he's in a position to maybe complain about others um he's certainly very uh bullish on the on the on his units and he um and he acknowledges uh how much like the war has transformed the countryside of mississippi uh especially with the lost the labor force he says we have ravaged the land and it sent away half a million negroes so this country is paralyzed and cannot recover its lost strength in 20 years um you know as all, as all things i think we can with with sherman his predictions tend to be right and and i have to look in the data on that but but i sense that that's probably accurate yeah and if you look at like productivity of of the countryside to consider how much the end of slavery and reconstruction did transform the the economy of the south especially in places like this in the black belt regions um but he then takes this opportunity to complain about the all the other union armies saying had the eastern armies done half as much war would be substantially un entered upon but i read of washington baltimore and philly being threatened and rosecrans sitting idly by waiting for personal favor from the newspapers and our government in washington chiefly engaged in pulling down its leaders hooker now consigned to retirement well, I thank God we're not, we are far from Washington and we have Ian Grant, not a great man or a hero, but a good, plain, sensible, kind-hearted fellow. Here are Grant and Sherman and McPherson, three sons of Ohio, have achieved more actual success than all else combined. And I've yet to see the first kindly notice of us in the state. But on the contrary, a system of abuse designed to calculate to destroy us with the people and the army. But the army of the Tennessee those who follow their colors and do not skulk behind the north and the hosp hospitals and depots far to the rear know who think and act and if life is spared us our countrymen will realize the truth again another prediction that that turned out correct now anyways one thing i'm kind of a little bit disappointed in in this anthology given we have so much text about the battle of gettysburg um, is that the New York draft rides are only given one eyewitness account here, and that's from George Templeton Strawn. So it's a good one. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty 
effective and damning account of the of the draft riots but it's only the one um and he um he comments a lot on the type of people who are engaged in this riot uh he writes for instance at last, it opened and outsteamed a posse of perhaps 500, certainly less than 1,000 of the lowest Irish day laborers. The rabble was perfectly homogenous. Every brute in the drove was pure Celtic, hod carrier or loafer. They were unarmed. A few carried pieces of fence peeling and the like. They turned off west into 45th Street and gradually collected in front of two three-story dwelling houses on Lexington Avenue, just below the street, and that standing alone together on a nearly vacant block. End quote. So, um... Uh, later on, he writes, The fury of the low Irish women in that region was noteworthy. Stallery, stalwart young vixens and withered old hags were swarming everywhere, all cursing the bloody draft and egging on their men to mischief. So he certainly has some uh, anti-foreign prejudice in how he describes them. Um, now, you know, again, this is something I have to look up. I, I do know that the, you know, the Democratic Party, which was more rooted in the foreign community was integral in that and a lot of the hostility towards the drafts were class-based obviously so there's a class politics here that maybe george templeton strong is is downplaying or maybe he's, he's maybe he's fully aware of it but he just doesn't have uh, the respect of the working people's concerns over the inequalities in the conscription system we talked about this before, and it's the North, both North and South had this problem. Worse in the South, of course, where if you owned slaves, you got a free pass on conscription. But in the North, you could, you'd, you could buy off, uh, you could hire replacements, essentially. That was the way you could get out of, of serving. A little fair in that sense, in that you, you, know, you didn't have to be part of the aristocracy, um, slaveholding aristocracy to get out of service, but still, most people were priced out. I think I think I read somewhere as it was about the equivalent of one year's wages would have been what you would have had to put forth to pay for a replacement. And obviously most working class people could not come up with that. I guess I just sort of wished there would have been more points of view on the draft riots, maybe from pe some people who participated in the riots, maybe, maybe their, more their perspective, maybe some of these Irish immigrant perspectives. Instead, we just get the the views of of a more upper-class New Yorker. Well, obviously he uh, was not at all hostile to the to the conscription policies and the war effort. So then that just leaves the the Battle of Fort Wagner, I suppose, which we get a a handful of accounts for. So that's to their credit for or the, the editors here credit for including them. Uh, we got uh, some journalist accounts like James Henry Gooding's uh, report to the New Bedford Mercury, which gives a very sympathetic account to to not just the 54th Massachusetts, but the other units that were involved in the in the battle. Okay, so he, he spends a whole paragraph here talking about the, the valiant efforts of the 54th Massachusetts, saying, after we made the first charge, everything was in such confusion that we could hardly tell where the rescue reserve was. At the first charge, the 54th rushed to within 20 yards of the ditches, and as it might be expected of raw recruits, wavered. But at the second advance, they gained the parapet. The color bearer of the state color was killed off the parapet. Colonel Shaw seized the staff, 
when the standard bearer fell and in less than a minute after the colonel fell himself. When the men saw their gallant leader fall, they made a desperate effort to get him out, but they were either shot down or reeled in the ditch below. One man succeeded in getting hold of the state color staff, but the color was torn to pieces. Now, I think that man that's mentioned here that picked up the, the colors was later awarded like the, the Medal of Honor, but he was one of the last people uh, to, to, to get it from the Civil War or something like that. There's some kind of factoid about him, or maybe it was... I don't think he was the first black man to get it, but he got it years later, I think, or maybe even posthumously. Um, we also have, for instance, Charlotte Fortin writing about uh, the death of Colonel Shaw um, in her journal from July 20, 24th. And of course, Charlotte Fortin was from a, a family of well-off free blacks from Philadelphia who did a lot of work in South Carolina after the war. Uh, Charlotte Fortin in particular, in you know administering aid uh building schools and and basically help i mean she's her her name is significant in the story of reconstruction uh in especially uh, black self-help um and her using her her wealth and her ability to to try to create new opportunities for for black people in these in the south and and she was down there during the war right uh so she writes about Colonel Shaw this way. Our noble, beautiful young colonel is killed, which, of course, is a sign that you, by this point already, African-Americans were, were taking in uh, Robert Gould Shaw as, uh, as part of their movement, which is, of course, how Shaw saw himself uh, in his own letters. We saw that. Um, he said, uh, I, must, I still must hope that our colonel especially ours he seems to me is not killed but i can write no more tonight i guess she didn't know it at the time that he had died um and then yeah she gets news later that he he died and she writes uh, reflects on that so i guess that's enough there are a lot of other documents i didn't mention here really mostly uh accounts of the battle of gettysburg by some officers and some some lower rank soldiers about different aspects of the battle. And if you're interested in the Battle of Gettysburg and you want those details, you could go to them here. But um, but thematically, I think there's not too much to say. Um, I, I just, you know, I think one thing that struck me is just how it wasn't clear at the time that the Battle of Gettysburg was such a, a turning point. People knew it was big and significant, but there's like frustration on both sides that the war is going to drag on. Um, and that kind of downplayed the... Uh, the successes you have Sherman at this, you know, at, complaining about the armies in the north after their biggest victory of the war, right? So um, I guess that's it for now. Um, so uh, in the next set of uh, documents, I think uh, get us through the rest of the summer of '63, um, and I'm yeah, we'll see what's going on there. I haven't even looked at them yet, <laughs> so. Uh, I really can't preview them too much for you. I've been kind of behind the, uh, a bit not on the ball with this podcast. I apologize for that, but I always have hope that that'll fix it and get, uh, get everything going again at full speed. Like it was a couple years ago, but we'll see. depends how work goes, sadly. 
So, anyways, uh, that will be it for now. Uh, I'll he see you next time. For the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching.